Hello and welcome to the Switch Your Money On podcast from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter, I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne and as usual, I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst and Sarah, the leaves are well and truly falling from the trees now and Halloween preparations are already in full flow in my house. I'm actually hiding in my broom cupboard studio with the piles of decorations next to me and the youngest member of the household is very excited the other two less so most of the grown-ups are far more worried about scary things like soaring grocery bills and high fixed deal mortgage rates right now and one thing that's certainly not yet falling is inflation Yes, there are some pretty gruesome mortgage rates out there right now because of interest rate expectations. So they're particularly horrifying if you look at where those fixed rates were just a year ago. And what's keeping people awake right now is what's likely to happen to their mortgage payments. Of course, there have been an awful lot of developments made to calm the markets, not least the arrival of a new Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, and his mini-budget Mark II, which rolled back many of those planned tax cuts. But we'll have to see how this plays out as far as borrowing costs are concerned in the weeks and months to come, and whether it'll be enough to bring mortgages back into the realms of affordability again. Yes, because all of this has an impact, doesn't it, on just how much money we'll have left over each month to buy stuff. I'll be honest, it's quite good having an excuse not to buy any more Halloween tat, but this does have big implications for anyone in the business of manufacturing and selling discretionary goods, particularly homeware. Yes, and the big spending squeezes has an impact on the discretionary sector. And that's what we're focusing on on this podcast in an episode we're calling Is Spending Stuffed? We're going to be talking to Charmaine Ponothrai, founder of Crane Cookware, who manufacture and sell some very high-end kitchenware and furniture. Hi, I imagine it's a pretty challenging time for trading right now. Oh, hi, Sarah. Nice to chat to you. Yes, so it's been a a really difficult year this year on on some levels because we began the year with um, supply chain issues, which have impacted lots of business. Then I guess there's been this, obviously, everyone's concerns to varying degrees about what's happening with energy prices. But on the other hand, we have also seen since COVID a really positive interest in improving your home. So I think people are paying more attention to their surroundings. Plus, we're going to chat to our lead equity analyst, Sophie Lund-Yates, as usual, who's back from a week away after your holiday blowout, Sophie. Is the purse tightening in the Lund-Yates household going on? Um, unfortunately, yes, I'm definitely feeling the holiday bonanza in the in the bank account. But a bit like a lot of people, we're, we're batch cooking here and cooking with a slow cooker. We're among lots of people, as we know, who are changing their cooking habits to try and claw back some money each month. And Sophie, this, of course, has an impact, doesn't it, on consumer discretionary stocks, particularly for those in the business of making stuff that we stuff our homes with. (laughs) Yes, it's definitely a really challenging time for some of the listed companies in this area. Um, I'll be taking a look at some of them, um, including household names like DFS and AO World. And yeah, really can't um, stress enough that it's, it's really quite tough out there at the moment. Thanks, Sophie. Plus, as always, we'll hear from HL's Head of Investment Analysis and Research, Emma Wall, who'll be exploring this area from a fund management perspective. And we will, of course, have the quiz. And I've been looking at the weird and wonderful world of homewares. I bet you can't wait, Sarah. Oh, no, the quiz. I can never wait for that. But first, let's take a look at some of the latest snapshots of the squeeze in our spending habits. As prices rise on the shelves, we're certainly buying less stuff overall. 
Over the last quarter from July to August, figures from the Office for National Statistics show that retail sales volumes fell 5.1% in the three months to August 2022, while sales values rose 5.6%. And this reflects an implied growth in prices of more than 10% and shows that the amount we're putting in our trolleys and virtual baskets is declining as costs shoot up. Now, consumer confidence is already at recessionary levels, so it's perhaps not too surprising to hear that September recorded the slowest retail sales since shops reopened after the pandemic in the UK. And that's according to data from BDO's High Street Sales Tracker. Yes, and this follows similarly downbeat numbers in August, which was previously the lowest point post-COVID. So the last two weeks of the month were the hardest hit, and the final week was affected by the bank holiday to mark the Queen's funeral. And the standout figure comes from a 6.3% fall in homeware sales. So it's clear that consumers are delaying buying bigger items, and this is a trend that's unlikely to budge until the economic horizon becomes less menacing. Yeah, from a business standpoint, those seeing weaker trading have a double whammy of margin jeopardy. I mean, the weak compound means that shops that import a lot of their stock are paying more for these products, which chips away further at profits, with grocery prices continuing to rise at a scorching rate of more than 13% at the last count. It's not surprising we're trying to save elsewhere by not spending so big on stuff in our homes. As many household bills mount for essentials like food and heating, a plush new sofa is a luxury many consumers, it seems, are happier to do without. Now, it is a slightly more buoyant picture in the United States, but a trend of less spend on furniture and electronics is being felt there too. Although overall retail sales lifted at the last count, with general merchandise sales lifted by back-to-school spending, receipts at furniture stores dropped 1.3% in August, while sales at electronics and appliance stores dipped 0.1%. And here in the UK, we have the extra problem of mortgage shocks causing purse strings to be pulled even tighter. So currently, at the time of recording, five-year fixed rates are at levels just not been seen for 12 years. And two-year fixed rates are hovering around 14-year highs. So if you have no choice but to come out of your current deal, the shooting up of monthly payments is going to hit hard, leaving even less money for discretionary spending. So what's it like being a homeware retailer right now? Well, let's check in with Charmaine Punothrai, founder of Crane Cookware. It's great to have you on the show, but can I get you to start off first of all by telling us a little bit about the types of products you sell because it's quite a wide range isn't it yeah it is quite a wide range so i'll just give you a little bit of a background to how it began so nine years ago i worked uh, for books for cooks in notting hill gate and working at books for cooks kind of exposed me to so much kind of in the food industry and cast iron is like one of those key pieces of people's kitchens and, and a nice heirloom but What we noticed was that in terms of designer brands, they're either really expensive or the sort of more everyday brands didn't have that kind of design-led background. So we thought something really simple, design-led would be, and affordable would be a good starting point. So that's how the cast iron pan came about. And at the time I did a book on eating at midnight and I'd gone to Le Creuset who had just done a midnight range um, and was trying to sort of partner my book with it because it was for a charity, a dyslexic charity, but that didn't work out. So from that, Crane was born with a, a small milk pan prototype and then, you know, crowdfunded from there. So Crane began really thinking about memories around food. And then from that, we've kind of developed a little bit more around these memories. That's how the range has grown alongside this demand for homeware and curated homeware because people don't have the time to maybe find like sustainably produced goods that are nicely designed um, and that have a really good manufacturing heritage and story behind them. 
Do you think, Charmaine, that the profile of your customers provides a bit of a buffer in these pretty turbulent times? I think I think to some extent it does because they're thinking about longevity and that they're never going to have to buy this piece again. Uh, or we, you know, we offer a repair service or replacement service to items. We can also see that there's an interest. We've just introduced a new handmade ceramic pot um, at a sort of lower price point with the same sort of ethics. And we can see a real interest in items like that. So people are maybe just trying to refresh a collection they have or just buy into a smaller piece, you know, whilst everyone works out, you know, where the world's going. So they want to still buy a slice of luxury just with a smaller ticket price. Yeah, exactly. Or a smaller item like, a, you know, like a candle holder or something like a gifting thing if it's a special occasion. But I think also, interestingly, more people are beginning to eat maybe at home more, go out a little bit less. So I can see, as, I suppose as winter comes as well, people really thinking about their home a lot. And I don't know, do I dare say Christmas, but it's that kind of, that kind of feeling. Yeah. Don't mention the Christmas word. <laughs> I mean, I guess you've been through lots of different sorts of, of times. So you've obviously had the pre-pandemic and then you've had the pandemic and, and now you've got the sort of cost of living. Have you noticed sort of trends change over that time and, and certain products become more, you know, more valuable to people? Yeah, so I certainly say when we began, we just sold to trade like the Conrad shop or Selfridges. And then just before the pandemic started, we really began to focus on direct to consumer audiences. Then COVID began, obviously everyone was cooking, there wasn't really a lot more to do maybe. So cooking just became massive and we really had a really good demand. We had stock and we did, you know, we did really well over that period. And then as people have started to go back to work post-pandemic, post-pandemic, it's the same thing about being at home, looking at your environment because you're sitting at your kitchen table working and you're thinking, oh, can I, you know, can I improve this environment? And so people, I think there's lots of companies and they've sort of begun to flourish that are offering kind of homewares. And I think Crane, we have such a nice loyal following and we've built up such a good reputation through cooks and chefs and also through press that people will then go, we really love those Crane products. So, you know, you know we might invest in these other pieces for our home. What about other headwinds? I mean, how has the lower pound affected you? For our French production, we're having to increase prices um, because of that. So same product, but yeah, we've obviously been affected by Brexit and yeah, all of these changes. So we've had to increase our prices. Do you worry then because of this price increase coming at a time when, of course, uh, people are tightening their belts, even wealthier uh, consumers, that that could have an impact on sales down the line? We've certainly been thinking about that really hard. And as a response to that, we're just um, about to, in the new year, launch a kind of uh, sort of range of spun cast iron that meets that price point that still has the same, because we really care about manufacturing, the way we manufacture things, its sustainability and its impact also on the people that make it and, and on the planet. So we're coming up with a small collection that kind of responds to those points. So again, people can maybe think about saving up for that, you know, bigger piece and start at this point. So that's how we're thinking about responding. Are you hoping then that you will be able to avoid discounting um, with uh, this kind of strategy? You know, obviously with the internet, everyone shops around and I think we do offer incentives from time to time, especially this year, we've had to do that with the kind of impact of supply chain issues. But it's not like a permanent strategy. You know, we don't aim to run that ongoing because I think it kind of diminishes 
the product and what we're trying to say about the fact that you'll never, you know, you'll never return to us. Say you buy a pan, you'll return to us for a piece of furniture, but you won't return to us for another saucepan because, you know, our aim is that you'll pass that on along, you know, your family or your friends. And having said, let's not mention Christmas, I, I should ask you about it. Are you expecting a fairly normal Christmas period or are you having to sort of, sort of tailor the products in order to take account of people's changing needs? My gut instinct is that I can see, like being in London as well, that people are obviously still eating out loads, but I think people begin to sort of, I've, you know, chatted to different groups, people and friends are thinking, well, probably eat at home more, try and cook stuff at home, be at home, you know, and sort of reduce those bills. So I feel like maybe we'll, maybe a bit like COVID where people just like come back into their homes more and see their friends, you know, that way, like have that special dinner party. And I don't know if that can be backed up from your end, but that's my sense. Well, we're going to find out now uh, with Sophie Lundiates, who looks at listed companies to find out uh, whether some of your experiences are replicated. But for now, Charmaine, thank you so much, founder of Crane Cookware. Thank you. So that's the view from the shop floor. And our lead equity analyst, Sophie Lundiates, has been focusing on listed companies in this sector. And she's back with us now to give us a bit of an overview. So first of all, Sophie, let's look at a furniture specialist. How has the famous sofa company DFS been doing? Hi, Susanna. Yes, I I can't dress this one up, really. DFS is struggling. Um, It announced back in mid-September that pre-tax profit fell 43% to 58.5 million in the year to the end of June. At the same time, orders are expected to decline by up to 15%. And what's really stark about this is that that 15% decline is compared to pre-pandemic times. Um, I mean, ultimately, we know furniture spending is facing weakness. The ONS retail figures for August um, in the UK showed that furniture sales have been weak across the board. You know, you were touching on that earlier. Um, So I'm not saying that this is a DFS only problem. um, But I think the particular challenge for DFS, though, is that there isn't a great deal of diversification. You know, their their modus operandi is, is very focused on sofas. There isn't really another product type to pick up the slack. Sofas are big ticket items. They aren't cheap you're looking at hundreds if not thousands of pounds so we're seeing that this is precisely the kind of spending as you were saying that people are delaying while the cost of living is increasing the group warned that the outlook for the entire sector is tough right now it's not just getting people to spend that's an issue but supply chains and cost inflation within the business are problematic too ultimately dfs has some broad market and specific operational challenges ahead going to be a tough time. So what about other household items? You've been looking at AO World, haven't you? How are things looking there? Hi, Sarah. Yes. So AO World, as a lot of our listeners will know, specialises in electronics and white goods. So things like washing machines, fridges and other household items. The company has been working very hard to combat challenging conditions, which was highlighted by a placing which raised 37.3 million from institutional and retail investors earlier this year. The aim of this is to boost liquidity. Now, when assessing the merit of a placing, investors should always consider if a company is raising money to chase growth or if it's under duress. Now, sadly, AO's fundraising falls into the latter camp. Pre-tax losses amounted to £37 million in the last financial year, compared with a profit of £20 million in the prior year. Now, AO World is in a situation where it's looking to rebuild profitability rather than go for growth, which is a precarious situation for an established company. And similar to DFS, a lot of AO World's goods are the kind of thing people will delay spending on. You know, a new TV or coffee maker is, is not a priority when times are difficult. In the group's defence, um, it's doing all it can to try and turn things around, but the current consumer backdrop means this isn't going to be an easy task unfortunately. 
So lastly then, what about Dunelm? Because it's not quite the same picture for Dunelm, is it? No, a bit of a different story happening at Dunelm. Um, at full year results released back in September, we saw that pre-tax profits were up 32% to £209 million. Um, now, this comes as the group is controlling costs, as like others in the sector, its expenses are climbing because of inflation. But quite remarkably, the group expects to deliver gross margins of around 50% in the new financial year. Clearly, demand isn't looking as weak as might have been feared. Uh, One reason for this, potentially, is the fact that Dunelm has a broad product range. You know, everything from smaller decorative bits and bobs for the home right up to more expensive, bigger items. So a trip to Dunelm isn't guaranteed to cost hundreds of pounds. It could be the case that where people feel they can't afford big items to freshen or refurbish the home, they're deciding to make do with a cheaper makeover for now, which would benefit Dunelm. It helps that Dunelm products are generally perceived as good value too, with this a core focus of, of management. Clearly good news coming out of the group, but it's not immune to challenges. If we see a very sharp economic contraction, it's possible that the group's revenue could start to dry up in a more dramatic way. Things are still uncertain for the entire sector, as, as I've been saying, so it's definitely one to monitor closely. And we shall do just that. Thank you so much, Sophie. Really going to be interesting to see how things shake out right across the sector. And if you are enjoying this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. So let's bring in Emma Wall now, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research here at HL. So we've looked in depth at consumer discretionary companies, which are clearly having a difficult time at the moment. But now I'd like to talk about something a bit different, the consumer staple sector. This includes the kind of products people need through thick and thin. Although, of course, they're not immune to the cost of living crisis and they aren't guaranteed to come through this time unscathed. So, plenty to talk about, as I have been discussing with Hargreaves Lansdowne's Head of Equity Funds, Steve Clayton. Hi, Steve. Hi, Emma. Good to be here. So, starting off, what is a consumer staple stock? Okay, so when we talk about consumer staples, we're talking about the sort of products that people use every day in going about their normal business. So that, that might be something like a toothpaste or shampoo, maybe a, uh, a food product. It's the sort of products where the consumption is not really that sensitive to the ups and downs of the economy. So consumer staples companies should be capable of delivering a more stable financial performance, even at times when maybe the, the rest of the world is, uh, is taking a few arrows. Which is why we're talking about them today, isn't it? Because although there's no guarantee, the macro outlook at the moment looks particularly challenged. And so consumer staples should be able to offer that sort of smoothed level of, of revenue, whatever the economic backdrop is. Well, that's right, because... There aren't that many people who take fewer showers, for instance, on account of the state of the economy. So now that we know what a consumer staple is, perhaps you'd like to highlight or or give a few case studies from the UK portfolio. What's your first stock? I think we have to start with Unilever. It's one of the world's largest producers of, uh, of staples. It's got a portfolio that ranges from Magnum ice creams through to the Dove skincare brand. It's selling millions of products around the world every every day, in and out. And they're just products which are used regardless of of what's going on in the wider economy. 
doesn't mean that they're commercially immune because of course they've still got, them, still got to control their costs and take care of the competition. But the underlying level of demand for the company's products is, is very predictable. Now, what happens when something like incredibly high inflation, like we have now, happens? I suppose no company is, is immune from that, and, and surely that's a risk. People will keep buying toothpaste, but the input costs must be going up for Unilever. That's it. And in the last year or two, we have seen the company warning that uh, that their cost bill is going up pretty significantly. But they are used to it. They can't avoid taking a bit of a hit the moment the, co- the extra costs first turn up. But they've got decades of experience. I mean, the, the company's been around for over 90 years. They've got decades of experience of working out how to pass these costs on. And remember, at the end of the day, the consumer has a need for what, for what they're selling. So it, it makes them more able to pass pricing through than many companies. And what's the second stock example then? The second stock is, is one that many people might not have heard of, even though it has actually been around in one way or another for a very long time. And that company is a business called Halion. It used to be part of GlaxoSmithKline, the giant pharmaceutical business. And what Halion is, is a, uh, a collection of consumer healthcare brands. And there's a lot of names that are, are familiar to people. Uh, they've got Centrum uh, Vitamins, they've got... Uh, Tummy Saddlers, uh, Voltarol Pain Relief and, and Advil. It's a very big portfolio, pretty much the largest portfolio globally of consumer healthcare brands. And again, the, the demand for these products is, uh, is pretty insensitive to the state of the economy. And the success of the company is, is driven more by their sort of success in marketing their products than it is by the, uh, the growth of the global economy. Now, one of the things that we talk about as a risk to pharmaceutical companies is is pipeline, so new drugs in development. Is this slightly immune to that? Because what you're talking about here is off-the-shelf medicine rather than your sort of typical medicinal pharmaceuticals? That's right. Halion isn't about going off and discovering new medicines. It's about taking products that have maybe been owned by pharmaceutical companies historically and which are now available for sale over the counter to uh, to consumers and that turns them into a uh, a marketable product rather than a medical prescription and they're serving categories which are very broad where demand is predictable and where people will gladly pay a premium for a product which they trust to deliver the benefits that they're looking for. Steve thank you very much. Thank you. That was Steve Clayton there, Head of Equity Funds for Hargreaves Lansdowne. To be clear, these are just examples of how consumer staple stocks might cope under current economic conditions rather than stock picks, and performance can never be guaranteed within any industry sector. Well, that was Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. Okay. It's that moment you've all been waiting for. The fortnightly quiz. The moment when I put Sarah through her paces again with random questions on this podcast edition subject. And today it's... Drum roll. Weird and wonderful items we put in our homes. Are you ready for this, Sarah? 
Well, as long as it includes, you know, random things kids pick up outside the house and come home with it, they insist you keep, like stones and twigs. <laughs> I've had that. <laughs> no, I had a hi-fi system. You get rich pickings in the streets the of Bristol, day. don't you? I did, honestly. <laughs> anyway, moving on. First question. Sarah, the concept of furniture emerged in Neolithic times, as early as 3100 to 2500 BC. But the first items created for household use were mainly made of stone. But what, according to historians, was the most important item in the home way back then? Was it a table, some stools or a dresser? <laughs> well, stone furniture, that sounds like a terrible idea. And can you imagine having to move it? You could give yourself a hernia just thinking about it. I suppose it could just be a name that was given to stones that you happen to sit on or, or happen to eat off. So I'll go for a table. No. It was, in fact, a dresser. Yeah, it didn't just emerge as a home fashion item to grace kitchens of the Cotswold set in the noughties. In fact, Orkney in Scotland is where stone dressers and cupboards originated, apparently, for the purpose of storage. So the dresser was an iconic feature of the home in Stone Age times. It was considered to be the most important piece of furniture in the beginning of furniture's evolution as, as it faced the entrance of each house and often displayed carved artwork of symbolic items. The loo or back of the cupboard then took over for all of those trophies and kids carvings that were once pride of place and you can't bear to throw away. Yeah and you know I'm sure we've got a loft full of those. I certainly have a cupboard full of them just right here. Okay next question Sarah. On this podcast we've already revealed the most expensive item of furniture that's been sold in recent times the badminton chest which went for a cool 37.1 million dollars in 2004. It features amethyst quartz and was created by 30 designers and took them six years. What I want to know though is what came second. Were you listening the first time around? Because this was mentioned, okay? So was it the Gorgon's dresser, the dragon's chair or the chameleon cabinet? Oh no, I think my memory's really letting me down because to me all of these sound completely made up. Um, But I'll take a step in the dark and I'm going to go with the Gorgon's dresser. No! It was, in fact, the Dragon's Chair. It sold for $27.8 million, designed by Irish designer Eileen Gray between 1917 and 1919. And it sold for 10 times its estimate. Never mind. OK, zero so far. Next, what kind of wood was the wardrobe made of in the Chronicles of Narnia's Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe? Was it pine, cedar or apple? <laughs> well, I mean, naturally, I've got no idea. But I do know the stories involved an awful lot of religious imagery. So I'm I'm going to go with the apple. You are right. It was the apple. And in fact, it was made from the apple tree in the lantern waste, which, as is revealed in the book, The Magician's Nephew, grew from the apple which the young Professor Kirk had given his mother when she was ill. Anyway, I think you have to really know <laughs> the saga of those stories to get into all the detail, but you can always go and look it up, Sarah. Anyway. That is, I mean, you've got impressive C.S. Lewis knowledge there. I mean, your, your kids must be huge fans. I mean, I think given mine's interest, I probably have a more in-depth knowledge of the wizarding world than I really need to. In fact, I was such a fan of these books, but definitely in my house, it's uh, it's Harry Potter rules. Anyway, Let's bring us back to reality, away from the lands of Narnia to the world of Ikea. Sarah, how many Billy bookcases have been sold around the world? Is the figure at least 40 million, 80 million or 120 million? 
Oh, I imagine we've all owned one of these at some point. I know I did throughout my 20s. Um, so I'm going to go for the top answer, 120 million. You are right. It is 120 million. The Billy bookcase is claimed to be the most successful piece of modern furniture of all time. More than 120 million have been sold since it first became a flat pack 42 years ago. And it's so iconic around the world that actually Bloomberg created the Billy Bookcase Index back in 2009 to compare its price in different countries around the world to compare exchange rates. It may be iconic, but I can tell you, Sarah, it is no match for those stone dressers of Neolithic times. I recently had a crockery disaster when one of the shelves of the Billy Bookcase collapsed. However, I think the clue is in the name. It is, to be fair, made for books and not cups and saucers. (laughs) Still, I'd probably rather have Billy than a stone dresser because you'd need to get a crane in every time you wanted to hoover. Okay, well, that's all from us for this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 17th of October 2022 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest and past performance isn't a guide to the future. Yes, this is not advice or recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers, to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. Goodbye.